New guidelines open up for the fully vaccinated. If you are around very low risk people like grandchildren, you can also resume life as we know it. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh. Jade Hindman is out today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Homeless people prepare to leave the San Diego Convention Center and move into bridge shelters. We're already making preparations for folks to come and settle in. We're getting their names of each individual. We'll have their uh, overflow bins ready for them. We'll have their bed assignments. It'll be a smooth operation. A new warning about the health effects of breathing smoke from wildfires. And the San Diego Rep prepares a month of new play readings from Black Voices. That's ahead on Midday Edition. You've been thinking about helping KPBS with a donation. Why not donate that extra car you no longer need? Pickup is free, and you're supporting KPBS Public Media. Here's how. Visit kpbs.careasy.org. Vaccinated grandparents visiting their families, vaccinated groups socializing without masks. Those tantalizing scenarios are part of the new guidelines for vaccinated people released today by the CDC. The guidelines offer a glimpse of a post-pandemic life for fully vaccinated people two weeks after their final injection. It's the kind of good news we've been waiting almost a year for. But the CDC warns there are still risks, even when people are fully vaccinated, especially in larger groups and with older, unvaccinated people. Joining me is Dr. Dr. Mark Sawyer, an infectious disease specialist with Rady Children's Hospital and UC San Diego. Dr. Sawyer also served on the panels that recommended the FDA authorize the Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson vaccines. And Dr. Sawyer, welcome. It's good to join you. It's good to have you. Now, these guidelines differ from previous CDC advice, where masks were required in just about all settings, even after vaccination. Why have the guidelines changed? Well, for one thing, we've, we're learning more and more about the effectiveness of the vaccines. And, and we, I think we, we've been talking about how effective we thought they were, but now we're seeing them in, in real life. And they really are working extremely well to prevent people from getting ill, especially high-risk individuals. The guidelines don't come out and say that fully vaccinated people can finally hug low-risk members of their families like grandchildren, but... The implication is that's okay, isn't it? Yes. Uh, The guidelines are predicated on the notion that if you're fully vaccinated, the chance that you are going to be carrying the the infection and giving it to somebody else who's also fully vaccinated is extremely low. It's not zero, but it's extremely low. So, So the CDC is saying we can get back to life as we used to know it if you're only around people who are fully vaccinated. And also low-risk members of families like grandchildren, isn't that right? That's right. We the, Among the things we have learned over the last six months is that young children are very unlikely to transmit infection. So they can't be vaccinated now yet, but they are considered low risk for transmission. So it's okay for a vaccinated grandmother to be around their unvaccinated young grandchildren. What about fully vaccinated people being around children from another household and those children may be at higher risk of complications from the virus? What's the advice there? 
Well, the general advice is if you're, even if you're vaccinated, if you're around people who are at high risk from getting COVID when they get COVID, then you should still follow the standard precautions we have been following. Nothing is 100% here. So to be extra careful with high risk people, you should continue to wear a mask and socially distance. What about out in public in larger gatherings? Are masks and social distancing still advised for people who are fully vaccinated in those settings? Yes, we want people to continue to follow the guidelines in in public settings because you have no idea who's around you, whether they're contagious, how contagious they are. You have to keep in mind the vaccine is not 100% effective, so you could still get sick. And on top of that, we're still waiting for evidence about whether the vaccine keeps you from actually acquiring the infection. Even if you don't get symptoms, if you acquire the infection and are contagious, then you could then pass it on to somebody else. Since older people have been at highest risk for severe illness, and that's the group who've gotten most of the vaccinations so far, there's a great deal of relief that the mental stress of isolation might be lifted by these new guidelines. What impact do you think that's gonna have? Oh, I think it's going to be huge. Uh, I just had my mother, who's 98, uh, over to my house to visit the grandparent, grandchildren, great-grandchildren yesterday for the first time in a year. And you could tell from the look on her face that it made a great deal of difference. Yeah, you might, must have seen a lot of that in your work with Brady Children's Hospital, how the isolation was affecting families. Yeah, it's affecting all of us, but it's certainly affecting seniors who have been confined to their to their apartments or houses or or long term care facilities. It's impacting children. We're seeing that in their learning and school and socialization. So this new CDC guideline is great news and it, it paves the way for future guidance as we get more and more of the population vaccinated. Now, even with this good news, there's still a great deal of concern about the coronavirus variants and how our vaccines may not be able to control them. Do you share those concerns? Certainly. The variants are something we have to watch very closely. There's, there are an increasing number of them, and that's inevitable and will continue as long as we're having a pandemic. The key to controlling them is to get everybody vaccinated, but we will monitor how the current vaccines are working. And the good news here is that the companies are already working on backup vaccines that should deal with the variants if we find that we need that. There's been some suggestion that people might need a booster vaccination in the fall because of the variants. Is that likely? It's very really hard to predict. The current vaccines look like they're still working against the variant. So as long as that's true, we will not need a booster as early as this fall. But each new variant has to be analyzed and determine whether the vaccines still work. And if we get to a point where the vaccines may not be working, then a booster or, or a second vaccine will be required. And just so that we're all on the same page here, is it possible for you to sum up the new guidelines for us? I guess the quick summary is that if you're fully vaccinated and are around other fully vaccinated people, you can return to your life as you knew it without a mask and without social distancing. If you are around very low risk people like grandchildren, you can also resume life as we know it. But when you're out in public around people you don't know, you should continue to follow the guidelines of masking and distancing. 
Now, a number of health officials say the, the new guidelines offering more interaction, the promise of not wearing masks all the time, will actually encourage people to get vaccinated. Do you see that happening? I think so. I mean, there have been people who have been reluctant to get vaccinated in part because they didn't see what it was going to do for them if they didn't perceive that they were at high risk themselves. But now this is going to show them that by getting vaccinated, they can return closer to life as we knew it. And it's also going to help the overall effort to get the population vaccinated. I have been speaking with Dr. Mark Sawyer, an infectious disease specialist with Rady Children's Hospital in UC San Diego. Dr. Sawyer, as always, thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. The San Diego Convention Center is about to take on another role in its pandemic journey. Officials have announced that after housing thousands of homeless San Diegans during the last year, the Convention Center will close its Operation Shelter to Home program the week of March 22nd. After that, plans are in the works to reopen the Convention Center as another major vaccination site. More than 700 people still being sheltered at the Convention Center will be moved to bridge shelters run by Father Joe's Villages and by the Alpha Project. And joining me today is Bob McElroy, CEO of the Alpha Project, which operates two of the city's shelters. And Bob, welcome. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Marie. Are you preparing to get Alpha Project ready for this transfer of people? How are you doing that? Well, we've been doing that. We've been working on it for a couple of months now to get the shelters all back up to speed. And uh, we're laying out the beds now so that we're spatially distanced appropriately. But we're good to go. We're really excited to get back to the bridge shelters. They're more homey and more community-oriented instead of the big warehouse. Uh, although the, the convention center has been a true true blessing, but we like to be back in the neighborhood. How many people will be coming to your shelters? Well, we're going to have, let's see, a total of 286. We're going to have 180 at their biggest facility. We used to have 324. We'll be back to 180 at the 16th and uh, Newton site. We have 72 women and 108 men. And then we'll have 106 at Imperial, 42 women and 64 men. So it's a little more cozy over there, but we're taking those folks out there that have been out there for a long time and need more comprehensive care. So it's really kind of cool. Now, what kind of coordination is going to be needed to move hundreds of people from a single shelter to various other locations? Can you give us a sense of the kind of effort that that takes? It's a huge effort, but, uh, you know, our folks are so resilient. You know, we've bugged out a couple of times. You know, we got flooded out a few years ago and moved 324 people. When we got flooded at 16th and noon, we moved into San Diego through the uh, Jack Murphy Stadium in an hour and a half. And you know, when then we had to when we had to bug out uh, with the COVID over to the convention center, our folks are just just way cool. You know, we get the buses going, and uh, what we've been doing now with the convention center because it's not an emergency evac. We're already making preparations for folks to come and settle in. We'll get their names uh, of each individuals. We'll have their uh, overflow bins ready for them. We'll have their bed assignments. It'll be a smooth operation. Do you know if the people who come to you from the convention center will be vaccinated? Well, we hope so. You know, we've done the 65 plus uh, folks. I've been begging for months, you know, to have every have it available for everyone, including our staff. And the protocols seem to change all the time. My outreach workers got vaccinated, but not my on-site workers that are there 24-7. 
uh, and same with our residents. But we hope to have that available here in the next uh, week or so of what I've heard. But, you know, there's also some resistance there. You know, some of us uh, have mental health challenges and they don't want to have the vaccinations, just like a lot of people don't want to have their flu shots. So we provide as much uh, information as we can to our folks. And, uh, you know, I, I, I got out there with everybody else. It took me, it took me a while to get vaccinated. You know, I'm old as dirt, but I didn't want to get vaccinated before we started offering them to the, to the residents there. And uh, as I do with the shoot flu shots every year, so it kind of encourages people. Well, if old man Bob gets a shot, well, maybe I can get a shot too. They wait to see if I'm going to croak in two weeks and then they get their shot. So uh, we're doing it little by little. We're, we're, we're getting people, getting people their shots. Last week, Mayor Gloria said that the Shelter to Home program found long-term housing for more than a thousand people. I'm wondering, how would you assess the whole convention center program? I mean, it was outstanding. I mean, you know, one time we had 1,700 people on site uh, at one time. We had over 700 on our side of the house. I think St. Vincent's had five, and and VVSD was there for a while with a couple hundred. So we had a lot of folks there. But the really the beauty of it was really centralizing services. You know, you've always we've always heard this. You know, uh, like a central intake facility where all this, the services are on one site. Well, we actually did that here. We had the housing commission physically on site. We had the county and their medical clinicians physically on site. We had the regional task force. We had fire. We had police. We had all the resources on site all the time. And, uh, you know, and, and instead of people having to shop around, uh, you know, to get things done, I'm talking about our residents and providers, we had everything there. And we're going to, we're going to, we're going to transition that same mindset, that same technical support to each one of the, of the shelters also. So we're going to keep the ball rolling here um and and keep carrying on you know it's over a thousand people actually that have been housed and the miracle with that is as you know as well as i do maureen that there's no low-income housing in san there's no there's no affordable housing in san diego or any other city but low-income housing certainly does not exist so it's just been a tremendous blessing uh, for for all of us to find housing for what little there is out there for those for those thousand plus people and we want to continue the same thing and has Mayor Gloria given any indication that he's committed to funding temporary bridge shelters in the long term? Absolutely. Absolutely. He's been, a, I've known Todd for years and years and years. And uh, we had a conversation while he was running and I, and I just want to make sure that he was, he understood the importance of having people to play, you know, a bridge to that housing. You have to have people, a bridge facility uh, where people can be safe with access to health care and mental health counseling and drug and alcohol treatment, all those resources in one spot while they wait for that housing that may or may never come. So, uh, yeah, he's on board with that big supporter. And, uh, and we're going to continue on the efforts that we've made. The, you know, we made tremendous progress these last few years. I've been speaking with Bob McElroy. He's CEO of the Alpha Project. Bob, thank you and best of luck. Thank you so much. Have a blessed day. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, 
and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh. Surveys show that black Californians are a lot more reluctant to get the coronavirus vaccine than white Californians. But most surveys don't ask respondents why. The California Report's health correspondent April Domboski reports one hypothesis politicians and medical experts have widely embraced may not be as widespread in the community. For months, health officials, politicians, and journalists have been invoking the infamous Tuskegee syphilis study to explain why Black people are skeptical of the vaccine. The Tuskegee experiment is a terrible stain on the soul of this nation. Because of things like the Tuskegee experience. The Tuskegee experiment. The Tuskegee experiment. The Tuskegee studies. Remember Tuskegee? Is this the federal government trying to fool you again? This bothers Maxine Toller. She's 72 and lives near Los Angeles. She talks to her friends and neighbors about the vaccine all the time. She's Black, they're Black. Hardly anyone brings up Tuskegee. And she says the handful that do are fuzzy on the details. If you ask them, well, what was it about and why do you feel like it would impact your receiving the vaccine now, they can't even tell you. Most people she talks to cite very current reasons for not wanting the vaccine religious beliefs or safety concerns, or they think the former president rushed it through for political gain. Toller calls the Tuskegee references a distraction, irrelevant even. It's almost the opposite of Tuskegee because they were being denied treatment, right? <laughs> and this is like, you know, we're, we're pushing people forward, like go and get this vaccine. A little history review for all of us from the PBS documentary, The Deadly Deception. The experiment was called the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male. It began in 1932 with about 400 black men in Alabama who had syphilis, a bacterial STD. It was authorized by the U.S. Public Health Service, paid for with taxpayers' dollars, and conducted by government doctors. Some people believe that researchers injected the men with syphilis, but that's not true. They already had it. Though researchers never told the men they had syphilis. The doctors said they had come to cure bad blood. And they never intended to cure them, even when a cure became widely available in the 1940s. The war period saw the rise of a wonder drug, penicillin. The study was about tracking the effects of untreated syphilis on the body, and doctors were determined to make it to their endpoint, autopsy. They withheld treatment and continued the study for another 25 years. The researchers pushed on, undeterred. By the time the study was exposed and shut down in 1972, 128 men had died from syphilis or related complications. 40 wives and 19 children were infected. With a horrific history like this, you might assume that Black people would never want to participate in clinical research ever again. Over the next three decades, various books, articles, and films repeated this assumption as gospel. That was a false assumption. 
Dr. Ruben Warren is in charge of bioethics at Tuskegee University and is a former assistant director of minority health at the CDC. He's originally from L.A. The hesitancy is there, but the refusal is not. And that's an important difference. Starting in the mid-90s, some researchers went on the hunt for evidence that Black people would refuse to be part of research. Over the next dozen years, they completed 17 studies, including surveys of thousands of people. The conclusions were definitive. While Black people were more wary of participating in research compared to white people, they were equally willing to actually participate. Hesitant, yes, but not refusal. Tuskegee was not the deal-breaker everyone thought it was. Warren says this did not go over well at the CDC and in other research circles. Much of it indicted and contradicted what the government said. Now researchers had to confront the real problem. Many of them never invited Black people to participate in their studies in the first place. When they did, they didn't try very hard. Tuskegee was a scapegoat. That was the excuse that they used to not include Black and and other communities of color in the research enterprise. If I don't want to go through the extra energy resources to include the population, I can simply say they were not interested. They refused. Warren says the same presumptions that were made about clinical research are resurfacing around the coronavirus vaccine. A lot of hesitancy is being confused for refusal. And so a lot of the work that needs to be done to get the vaccine to Black communities is not being done. USC sociologist Karen Lincoln believes Tuskegee is once again being used as a scapegoat. It's an excuse. And I do think that if you continue to use it as a way of explaining why many African-Americans are hesitant, it, it, it almost absolves you of having to learn more, do more, involve other people, admit that racism is actually a thing today. The memory of Tuskegee is still very present for some people. But Lincoln says it's the contemporary failures of the healthcare system that are causing more distrust than events of the past. It's what happened to me yesterday. Not what happened 50 years ago. African-American seniors complain to her all the time about doctors dismissing their concerns or nurses answering the call button for their white roommate more than them. And the word travels fast when people have negative experiences. They, they share it. Like the Facebook Live video of Susan Moore that went viral. Moore, a Black doctor with COVID, filmed herself from her hospital bed, an oxygen tube in her nose. She tells the camera how she had to beg her physician to give her remdesivir, the drug that speeds up recovery from COVID. He said, ah, you don't need it. You're not even short of breath. I said, yes, I am. He further stated, you should just go home right now. I put forward and I maintain, if I was white, I wouldn't have to go through that. Dr. Moore died two weeks later. It's stories like these that stoke mistrust. Dr. Reuben Warren says if you want to shift that, if you want Black people to trust doctors and trust the vaccine, don't blame them for distrusting it. The obligation is on the health institutions to first show that they are trustworthy. Prove yourself trustworthy and trust will follow. Warren says Black people will participate when institutions and officials take responsibility and stop making excuses.
Last year, raging wildfires, especially in Northern California, caused weeks of dangerous air pollution. Now researchers at Scripps have found that smoke from wildfires is not just bad for your health, but potentially worse for your health than other forms of air pollution. A new study finds that tiny particulate matter in the wildfire smoke can be more damaging to the respiratory system than similar matter from factories and car exhaust. The authors of the study say the findings may change how air quality is measured and health warnings issued during wildfires. Joining me is Tom Coringham. He is a postdoctoral research economist at Scripps Institution of Oceanography and a co-author of the recent report. And Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Can you start off by reminding us just what particulate matter is, like its size, and why it causes damage? Sure, there are there are several kinds of uh, fine particulate matter. What we studied in this uh, work was PM two point five, or particulate matter that is smaller than two point five microns in diameter. Uh, to give you a sense of what that is like, it's about one twentieth uh, the width of a human hair. Uh, it's important because uh, our body has natural defenses against larger particles, but when they get that small, they can actually get into the lungs and and pass into the body. What did researchers look at to determine the health impact of particulates in wildfire smoke? So in this study, we, uh, we took 14 years of data where we looked at wildfire currents and uh, levels of PM2.5, and then we linked that to hospital admissions for respiratory conditions. And we found that, well, we were able to separate out the wildfire particulate matter from other forms of particulate matter, and we found that a 10-unit increase in... Um, non-wildfire-related particulate matter led to a 1% increase in hospitalizations, whereas the wildfire particulate matter unit for unit led to a 10% increase. So there was was a substantial difference um, between the two forms of, of air pollution. And what kind of respiratory problems do these particulates cause? Uh, it's a variety of, uh, of uh, respiratory complaints. The main ones we focused on were upper respiratory tract infections, asthma, and COPD. But uh, the, these particles have been implicated in a lot of different health conditions beyond just the respiratory uh, impacts. Uh, they uh, have been shown to increase cardiovascular problems, um, among other things. Why are the PM2.5 particulates found in wildfire smoke worse than the same tiny particles in other kinds of admissions? Uh, so it's, it's still, uh, still something of an open question. There is evidence in the toxicology literature that there are certain compounds in, uh, in burning organic matter that aren't present in other forms of particulate matter. And uh, I should say... Um, you know, there are, are things out there that are worse than, than wildfire smoke. So diesel soot, for example, is, is quite harmful and certain pollutants that come from industrial plants. But um, what we found in this study is that, uh, you know, over our domain and time period, uh, the, the wildfire smoke was, was more harmful in terms of uh, causing hospital admissions than, than the other sources of pollution. About how close to a wildfire do you have to be to be at risk from the potential health effects from the smoke? There's still there's work ongoing to answer answer that question, but it does seem like uh, clearly the effects are are uh, more pronounced when you're uh, closer to the fire. But uh, we have seen in in more recent work that uh, 
Um, even smoke from as far away as Northern California seems to uh, result in an uptick in, in hospital admissions. So when you think about the fires of 2020, looking at the satellite images, there's just the whole West Coast was blanketed in smoke and uh, smoke was uh, seen as far east as, as, uh, as the East Coast. So um, I think certainly for the West, um, any of these large fires can have potential health impacts. Does this possibly mean that when we're finally able to take off our COVID masks that we may be advised to wear masks during wildfire season? Well, certainly, I think the main thing that people can do to protect themselves is, uh, is stay inside if possible uh, during these heavy smoke conditions and definitely avoid any kind of strenuous outdoor activity. And if you're able to stay inside, uh, it may be worth investing uh, in uh, improved air filtration system for your home or, or buy a portable purifier. So those are the types of things that people can do ahead of the fire season and during the fire season to protect themselves. Your findings, of course, have a particular significance considering what we know about climate change and its effects on wildfires, because we're likely to be seeing more wildfires. Isn't that right? That's right. With uh, the changing climate, we're seeing hotter and drier conditions across the Western United States. And this leads to uh, more frequent and more intense wildfires of larger area. So it's definitely something that we need to be thinking about uh, as we as we move forward. And we've actually done very well with reducing pollution from other sources, but clearly the, the wildfires are, are not something that you can regulate. So it's something that we need to uh, take seriously. And the study seems to suggest that our air quality standards need to be updated to reflect the extra health risk associated with wildfire smoke. How, how should they be updated? I think there's certainly a, a possibility here for changing the thresholds, for example, of the air quality index that's uh, put out by the EPA um, to reflect the, the source of the pollution. Um, another option would be simply to, to add a flag to the, to the warnings, uh, alerting people to the fact that this air pollution is due to wildfire and should perhaps be taken more seriously. I've been speaking with Scripps Institution of Oceanography scholar Tom Coringham. Tom, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Now to a story many have followed in the city of Stockton, California. 25% of Stockton's population lives in poverty. So two years ago, then-Mayor Michael Tubbs opened the door to an experiment. 125 low-income Stocktonians would get $500 a month, no strings attached, from donors including the Economic Security Project, backed by a Facebook co-founder and based in Silicon Valley. The results from the trial are out. Former Mayor Tubbs spoke to California Report host Lily Jamali, and here's that interview. So as you look at the data from Stockton's Guaranteed Income trial, what's been your biggest takeaway? The biggest takeaway, and let's shout it from the mountaintops, is that a guaranteed income, I repeat, giving people money, I repeat, did not stop people from working. Right. And there were two groups in this trial. One was getting the extra $500 a month. There was another group not getting that. And in the group getting the benefits, the share of people with a full-time job rose 12 percentage points compared with 5% in the control group. What do you make of that? I make that people want to be productive and that these tropes we have around economic scarcity or poverty being caused by a poverty of character 
or by a poverty of ambition is just false. They're lies and we should retire them and, and move on. What we saw was that it was structural factors. It was the fact that people couldn't buy clothes for interviews. It was the fact that people couldn't afford childcare. It was the fact that people couldn't afford car fixes. It's the fact that people couldn't afford to take time off of their hourly job to, to, to an interview um, for a job with maybe a more stable schedule. So before I let you go, I want to ask you about the campaign. You lost your bid to remain Stockton's mayor in November. Um, and in my conversations with Stocktonians, I've met a lot of fans of yours. I have also, though, spoken with people who voted for you and then, you know, felt like local issues sometimes took a, a back seat to the national attention which this experiment brought. In fairness to you, you know, this this trial also put a spotlight on Stockton, not just you individually, but but do you think that bringing this project to Stockton hurt you politically and might even have cost you the election? Yeah, well, let me say that um, I will put my record as mayor of Stockton against any mayor of Stockton's history. I left office with a $13 million surplus. I left office with two of my four years being named the All-American City. I left office with two of the safest years in terms of shooting and homicides in the last 20 in the city. Um, so I, I think that um, I'm proud of that work. And I think also economic scarcity and, and poverty is a huge issue for the city of Stockton. It's something the mayor should be focused on. Um, I think I lost my election. It's been documented because of disinformation. And I also understand that in the history of this country, anytime anyone has been unapologetic about equity, unapologetic about condemning white supremacy vocally, unapologetic about making sure that we get rid of poverty, the status quo has a lot of friends. But I would say I lost an election, but I'm going to win the, po the policy war. And we're going to win the policy war because now we have 40 mayors who are signed out for guaranteed income and the momentum is just only be beginning to build. That was former Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs speaking with California Report host Lily Jamali. The adrenaline of gliding into a bowl at a skate park isn't just for skaters or bikers. KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne tells us why. Everybody here is a skater, but not everyone rides a skateboard. Tony Thogmartin loves a skate park, but in 2017, he got hurt really bad snowboarding. And so when I broke my back, the doctors pretty much said I'll never be able to skate again. And I wasn't going to let that like happen. Like I was like, no, there's no possible way. After that, he began researching wheelchair sports and met Troy McGurk. McGurk also uses a wheelchair. He's won several national titles playing and coaching wheelchair rugby. McGurk helped Thogmartin get a specialized skating wheelchair made to withstand the heavy wear and tear of skating. Our biggest problem is the price of a chair to really come out here and have a lot of fun. People have destroyed their everyday chairs. And so what's nice there is there's different foundations out there that give grants for wheelchairs. Each chair has to be customized to the person and is handmade, making the price unaffordable for most people. Thogmartin was awarded a grant for a specialized wheelchair and has never looked back. It just took a lot of practice, a lot of time, a lot of effort, and just committing to myself going out multiple times a week, pushing through the pain, not really caring about the fear of falling, just kind of putting that in the back of the mind and just going for it. Thogmartin hopes to go pro and is grateful that the skateboarding community is encouraging. When it comes to like the wheelchair, like they've been like very open arms about it 
and like skaters love it because you know like a lot of people don't see this every day so when they do see it it kind of gives them a step back and go whoa like. aside from coaching troy mcgurk is also the organizer of socal wcmx or wheelchair motocross in southern california mcgurk puts together events for the wheelchair community to get together and skate so it's just i put together a flyer and put it out and whoever shows up shows up and we just skate and have fun. Most of McGurk's meetups happen at Southern California skate parks. Although the skate parks appear to be a perfect destination for a wheelchair, one problem not visible to the naked eye is ADA accessibility. It's easy for wheelchairs to get into the pits and bowls of the skate parks, but not so easy to get out. Terry Newhouse sits on the committee for the new upcoming Fallbrook Skate Park. This will be the first skate park for the city of Fallbrook. And this is a needed thing in Fallbrook. There's so many kids here in Fallbrook they have nowhere to go. They're skating in back alleys of, of apartments and stores trying to find some place to skate. Newhouse is a skateboarding instructor and also works with challenged athletes. While planning for the skate park in Fallbrook, he wanted to make sure the skate park included one thing, ADA accommodations. They want to be self-sufficient just like everyone else. There's going to be a way for them to get in and out of the park on their own without the use of having somebody push them out all the time or wait for somebody to help them. Newhouse said the Fallbrook Skate Park is expected to be completed by the end of this year. Until then, Thog Martin has one piece of advice. Come to a skate park, have some fun. That's what it's all about. Tanya Thorne, KPBS News. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh. Next week, the San Diego Rep launches its new Black Voices 2021 play reading series. It consists of a selection of plays representing a diverse range of Black voices with post-show discussions after each play. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with playwright Vincent Terrell Durham, whose play Polar Bears, Black Boys, and Prairie Fringed Orchids kicks off the series. Vincent, you're part of the San Diego Rep's Black Voices 2021 play reading series, and your play has the interesting title of Polar Bears, Black Boys, and Prairie Fringed Orchids. So give us a little insight into what this is about. I like to describe it as my God of Carnage play. I wanted to write a play that got people into the into a room and they had conversations, and those conversations just spiral all over the place personalities come out, frictions happen, alliances happen. So that's really where the play generated from in my heart was God of Carnage. I just love that play. And plus, it was a, a play that I thought was timely. It tackles gentrification, racial identity, Black Lives Matter, a whole bunch of topics. And so you can see, like, you know, if you get all these people in that room talking about these things, you're going to have a lot of interesting things happening on stage. So when you were contemplating what characters you wanted in this, what was the process you went through in terms of determining what that mix of people was going to be? Sure. Um, I wish I had an answer for that, truly. But like when I sit down and things are going well as a writer, these people just come into my head. But um, really, it kind of starts with the dialogue. When I get two people talking, then that starts to create the characters. So 
the play really started with uh, Molly and Peter, a um, Caucasian couple who gentrify Harlem or who move into Harlem. <laughs> and, you know, just from that, I wanted to see, okay, what characters can I introduce to make them react in a certain way? So once I had those two characters talking to each other, uh, flushing out their personalities, then I got to add other people. And that's where, you know, Shamika came in and Tom and Jaquan. So all of these people who would challenge each other's personalities. And Vincent, since I can't play a clip or a scene from your play, I was wondering if you could just read a little something. Okay. This is later in the play, and I don't think it's given away too much of the play, but it's Jaquan. I think this line expresses a lot about what I'm trying to say. It's not the only thing I'm trying to say, but I think it's, it's, it's something that I, I really cherish. So this is Jaquan's line. All it should take to protect us is to see our humanity, even in our worst moments, the same humanity they still saw in the eyes of a white boy who had just killed nine people after walking into their church and praying with them. You're telling me they can only see my humanity if I'm listed next to a Bengal tiger? So that's a little tease and yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Oh, thank you, Beth. I like that. And talk a little bit about the process and the evolution of the play, because, you know, people go to see a play and it's just there and it's done and <laughs> you don't have the sense of how much work goes into it. And also the part that theater companies can play in helping you to evolve a work like this. A absolutely. Yeah, there's there's so many people behind me right now that have helped this play because, you know, the 10 minute play started at Playground L.A., it's an incubator for playwrights. And it's the first time we bring in a 10 minute piece. It's a stage reading. So it's the first time you get to hear that. And I was lucky and grateful to receive a commission. And so then throughout the commission process, I was receiving support through the person, uh, Planet Earth Arts, I should be specific. They uh, gave me the uh, commission. And you know, during that whole process of me writing the play, they kept in touch with me. They set up a table read, set up a second table read. So you can keep hearing all of these drafts. You know, I can't tell you which draft I'm on at this point. And even for San Diego, I've been back at the piece and rewriting and tightening it up. So it is a process. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of people behind me. I should be um, uh, a little shout out to, uh, to Jim Kleinman and Eldo Billingsley, because it was their uh, Juneteenth project that really brought this play to uh, the attention of a lot of people. And San Diego Rep as well, it, it brought it to their attention and I'm grateful for that. And it's very different for a playwright versus somebody who's like writing a novel where you're writing something strictly for somebody to read off the page. But for a playwright, what is that like when you hear those words spoken for the first time and find out kind of like how they bounce off the walls and, and really sound when they're spoken? Right. I love that question because I, I've been taking the master classes and uh, Aaron Sorkin was one of the master classes I've taken recently. And he says that, you know, a play is not meant to be read. It's meant to be performed. And like when he said that, it was like, wow, yes, that's so true. The first time you hear your words is like, it's either uh, amazing or terrifying. You know, <laughs> it really, it really is because like, I can tell you, um, not, not really this play, but I'll go back to the very first play I ever wrote. It really was a moment of me being vulnerable. You know, the very first stage reading I had, 
I didn't know if I could write a play. I had all these people waiting to see if I could write a play. And then when I had the actors jump into it and they started reading those words and when it was all over, I was like, oh, okay, I do know what I'm doing. You know, I, I haven't been in my room just scribbling on the laptop. I actually wrote a play. So it's, it's, it's a lot of confirmation and sometimes it's a little pain. <laughs> and talk about the tone of your play because you are able to mix very serious issues, but you also have a sense of humor to this. This is very entertaining. And there are moments of comedy in kind of these moments of realization also. Sure. I think um, when you ask people to come into a theater and sit 90 minutes, you have to uh, respect their time and you have to respect their their sensibility as well. So like, I didn't want people to come into a play and just be hit hard with things. I wanted them to come in. Actually, I wanted them to come in and feel like they were a part of the cocktail party and have some laughs and relate with some jokes and and see themselves, you know, and then hit them with the hard stuff, you know. So I, I, I tend to lead with comedy and then hit with that hard stuff. It makes it uh, a spoonful of sugar <laughs> makes the medicine go down, they say. And what do you hope people are going to take away from your play? I mean, what is kind of why did you write this? Like, what was the thing that really motivated you to write this? You know, my I think the biggest thing for me is conversation. I want people to to leave. There's so many themes, so many um, subjects in this play that I want people to leave the theater talking and and having an open and honest dialogue saying like, you know what? Like when Peter said that, I, I, I say that and I, I don't know what it means. But let's talk about it, you know? Or like when this happens, like that, I've, I felt that way. You know, what does that mean? I, I, I think theater is like a, a beautiful place to start conversations and to start healing and to start just discussions really. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about your play. All right. Thank you so much. Have a great day. That was Beth Accomando speaking with playwright Vincent Terrell Durham about polar bears, black boys, and prairie-fringed orchids. It will be presented live online next Monday at 5.30 p.m. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.